welcome to episode 124 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Mindy Bloom, Katie Ben Dixon, Sierra Rose, Holly Gillio, Kimberly Becker Humes, Kate Johnson, Kathleen Goff, Francesca Givens, Leslie Friedman, Monica Fields, Lucy Edwards, Caitlin Cunningham, Angela Hogan, Katie, Alison Moss, Lynx, Benjamin Salinas, Robert Kelly, Debbie Klukas, Meg Alice. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you. We appreciate you more than you will ever know. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Witch in the Window. The Witch in the Window was released in 2018. It has 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. Simon plans to make some profit by renovating and selling an old farmhouse he just bought. Later, he and his son soon discover that the house is haunted by the previous owner's spirit. What were your thoughts on this film? I feel that it was well-intentioned, but I would like to point out from the offset that although this is a horror movie, there is no scare at all. There is a moment where I thought, oh, this is really clever, it's going to do something scary, and then it just ruined it. I think that's slightly unfair, because I think it was one of those films where there were plenty of things going on in the background that maybe you wouldn't notice if you weren't paying attention, but then when you do notice, you start seeing more and more stuff going on in the background. However, that very quickly loses its effect, and I agree that it is a horror film that is without the scare factor. But I will say, the relationship between father and son was very, I thought it was very good. Like, I was invested in the two of them as characters. It didn't feel forced. Like, we've we've watched a lot of horror films recently where the script is horrendous and the characterization and the relationships between the characters is really not there but this felt very natural it felt very normal a normal father-son relationship and also what I really enjoyed was that when the son approached his dad and said I think there's something weird going on in this house the dad did not do the horror film thing and go oh don't be silly we're fine he was like oh shit do you think so too (laughs) which i thought you know that's really refreshing because we immediately have two people who think oh shit yes something terrible is happening and there's none of that behavior where it's like no don't be silly no you're fine no it's okay so i liked that element of it yes and he actually takes proactive steps to keep his son safe by sending him home to his mother which i think is uh is a horror dad move that paul will appreciate Yes, definitely, because we don't see that a lot in horror dads. We see a lot of horror dads being actually quite chaotic and quite (laughs) flippant with the safety of their families, to be really frank. I think this was probably a really low budget film that had, like you said, really good intentions. Uh, They lost it. It was about 15, 20 minutes too long. Every time I thought it ended, it, it stayed going which I, I, I found very strange. Well, you see, I'm going to disagree with you there because I felt that the extra stuff actually allowed it to be a little bit better than it could have been. I thought if it had been shorter than it was, it just would have been bad, like really badly executed with nothing. Like the, the, good, the good bits of the story got developed towards the end, I think. 
But do, do you not feel like then they tried to thread everything together that they had completely not threaded together in the film in those last 20 minutes? Okay, basically what's happening is we're both beating around the bush. The problem with this film is the witch. That is the problem. (laughs) And actually, the witch was a great concept because there was a point where they both saw her. She didn't disappear. She was sitting in this chair and they were going, oh shit, do you see her? Yes, I see her. Oh my God, we have to go and find out what's going on. They shine a phone on her. They don't see her in the phone, but they see her in real life. As in the camera on the phone. Really clever. And I thought, and I literally turned to Dan and I said... I don't know how they're going to get out of this as a horror film. You know what I mean? I don't know where they go from here. And where they went was the really scary witch was a real not scary woman. <laughs> and I, I mean, even I, do her makeup a bit better to make to make her look more. She she was just a, a woman like and, and stood up and chased them. And it was so poor. It was, Oh, God, it was awful. I don't need to see a woman arms flailing chasing after a man and his son after being told this woman died everyone in this in the town thought she was a witch she was really scary she looked really scary sitting in the chair and then she's just a woman all the confrontations that involved the witch moving in this just reminded me of someone shouting at their partner down the queen vic on eastenders that's essentially the scariness of it and that was the most disappointing thing about this film. I liked what they tried to do. I even liked the story they told. It's just any moment that was close to being scary was ruined by the fact that they put no effort into the witch. I wonder if it was a case of them putting no effort or them being limited by budget. I actually thought about this quite a lot in the last couple of days because it it frustrated me. Because I thought, wow, this is really novel. Like, they're doing cool things with, with this film on a budget. And I always think if you're on a budget, less is more. They went down the more route and just fucked it. And I and I feel, I feel annoyed because they actually had good actors. They had good relationships. There was a good storyline. I'm disappointed. I'm very disappointed. I'm, I'm, I'm almost annoyed. And I really think 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Really? That that is that that's 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 the most disturbing thing about this whole situation. I feel sorry for this film, and I don't like feeling sorry for films. <laughs> Why do you feel sorry for? It? That's a strange way to feel. Because I feel like it's like they did everything right, and the one thing they got wrong stopped it from being an effective horror film. And I'm just like, you know, it's like a a rookie goalkeeping error. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you that one. So, what what do you give this film out of five? Um, I had given it two and a half, but I think it's probably a one and a half, really. Ooh, I was going to give it a two just because I thought, you know what, you, you, you had great ideas and great intentions. But if you don't have the budget, less is always more. And I did think like you, I thought the witch really let it down, really massively let it down. And uh, yeah, so they did have, although I'd nearly bump it up to a three because they had one great horror moment that I thought whoa I did not see that coming that was brilliant but then it didn't really go anywhere so I'm yeah I'm, I'm a two I'm a two. Oh, it wasn't the one that was a really great horror moment that was then ruined by the witch which brings us to our story this week now I need to why are you laughing which brings us to the story this week <laughs> that was good there was, I thought you were laughing at me. I thought I had done something. No, I was, was like, oh. I was laughing at your clearly intentional pun. <laughs> clearly intentional. So, Jordana, 
contacted me on Instagram and said, hey, I've just finished reading this book and it really freaked me out. And it's about a, it's a story about a house in Ireland. And the girls who lived in the house, one of them wrote the book and the other sister sometimes talks about it on TikTok. And I was like, yeah, cool. Like, thanks. I'll check it out. So I went and got the book and I uh, checked it out. And that's the story we're going to be talking about today. And it is the story of the Sharon Rectory. And all of my information for this episode comes from a book called The Haunting of Sharon Rectory by Emma Louise Tully. The link's in the description. Have you ever heard of the Sharon Rectory? No, I've heard of Sharon Rectory. She used to work at my school. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a dad joke. Our story begins in Donegal on the 2nd of March, 1797. While geographically located in the north of Ireland, Donegal is actually part of the Republic of Ireland. Reverend William Hamilton was making his way from Fanad to Lifford Court House, where he would take part in criminal hearings. He was a magistrate and was locally considered to be a cold, hard man and had sentenced men, women and children to hang indiscriminately. That would be enough for the local community to dislike the man. But Hamilton had angered people in the community that were very, very dangerous. In 1792, Hamilton had written a piece that condemned republicanism and outlined his pro-British ideals. And this made Hamilton a target for the United Irishmen. For six years they had staked out Hamilton, gearing up for an assassination. The United Irishmen had unsuccessfully attempted to murder him in February 1797, after which Hamilton employed an armed guard to escort him wherever he went. On leaving the courthouse this particular evening in March of 1797, Hamilton set off to his own parish with his guard in tow. A storm rolled in overhead and the winds began to howl. To get home, Hamilton had to cross Loch Swilly, but the boatmen wouldn't allow it. It was too risky, they said. Wouldn't be possible until the storm had passed. Hamilton knew he couldn't continue on his journey, so he sought refuge for the night with his friend Reverend John Waller, who lived in Sharon Rectory. Reverend Waller was a well-respected man in the community. He had been paralysed from the waist down in a horse-riding incident and now used a wheelchair. He lived in the rectory with his wife Sarah and an array of staff. What none of them realised was that Hamilton had been followed by the United Irishmen. They tipped off the boatmen not to let him across Loch Swilly and now were waiting to ambush the Sharon Rectory. The group of men descended on the house and shot through the windows. Hamilton fled and locked himself in the cellar. Sarah tried to save her husband and was shot twice and killed. The staff of the household dashed to save the Reverend Waller and made the realisation that it was Hamilton that was the target. So in an act of self-preservation, they retrieved Hamilton from the cellar and threw him to the United Irishmen. His death was brutal. The flagstone where he eventually died was removed from the house and Reverend Waller grieved the loss of his wife for two years before passing away. Many families lived in the house over the years 
and there were more tragedies. Though not remotely as brutal as the murder of Reverend Hamilton and Sarah Waller. But our story truly begins in 1988, when an unsuspecting young couple showed an interest in the rectory that would change their lives forever. Vincent and Lisa Tully decided to venture down the dark laneway to get a look at the famous Sharon Rectory. They were both from the local town of Newtown Cunningham and had heard all the stories. The rectory had stood empty for years and while it had a reputation for being haunted, it was also the haunt of local teenagers who would conduct ill-advised Ouija board sessions to try and contact the murdered spirit of Reverend Hamilton. The locals had stories of mists and spectres, noises and full-bodied apparitions. Vincent and Lisa trundled slowly down the laneway in their old car, craning their necks to get a look at the place. They pulled up the car outside the gates and sat silently in the darkness, watching and waiting. They didn't really know what for, but neither were expecting to see what they did. As they looked through the gates from the car, a large black dog seemed to appear from nowhere, bounding towards the car at great speed. Closer it got, and the pair winced at the expected collision as the dog got closer to the gate. But it didn't collide with the metal. It sailed straight through the gate and ran up the side of Vincent's car and disappeared into the night. Vincent started the car, slammed it into reverse and reversed down the laneway. Seven years later, in 1995, the Tullys were looking for a property to buy. The local priest owned the rectory and agreed to sell it to them. They knew that it would be a labour-intensive process to get it back to its former glory, but once they saw the inside of the house and the potential it had, they knew they had to have it. It was a serious undertaking. The house was essentially in ruins, and each room had to be rebuilt from the floor up. In one room, Lisa's father found bones buried beneath the floor, and unable to figure out if they were human or animal, he kept digging, and eventually found a skull. It was definitely an animal, and the bones were disposed of. But hundreds of years ago in Irish folklore, it was tradition to bury an animal carcass or bones in the foundations or walls of your dwelling. It was a ritual to ward off evil spirits from your house. Perhaps there is nothing to this tradition, an old forgotten ritual born of misplaced fear and superstition. Or... Perhaps hundreds of years ago, people were onto something. While the family continued their renovations, they hired local tradespeople to complete the plumbing and electrical work. After working on the property, they began to report poltergeist activity and strange, uneasy feelings while they were working. And whisperings began in the town of strange things happening in Sharon Rectory. But eventually, in August 1996... The family moved in. The Tullys had a daughter, Emma, who was completely unaware of the history of the house or the talk of the strange things that happened there. She was only young when she went to see it first, a child, but could remember an eerie sensation, a sensation of something bad. When they moved in, she would wander the rooms of the house while her parents continued renovations. 
She would feel deep icy cold in some rooms that made her shiver and stop to watch her breath billow out in front of her. At night time she would lie in bed and look at the door in her bedroom which led to a staircase. The door had a small frosted window and in her mind's eye she would imagine seeing a white face peering through it in at her. It didn't appear. But what did appear were the footsteps that would come up the staircase and stop outside of her door. The first time she heard them she lay there expecting her mother or father to open the door but it never happened and she was keenly aware that someone or something had walked up the staircase and was now standing outside her bedroom door. A few nights after her first encounter with the footsteps and Emma was still sleeping with her bedside lamp on, the house scared her and the house at night time scared her even more. This night she was settling down to sleep when an icy cold breeze blasted her face. She opened her eyes and immediately wished that she hadn't because there at the foot of her bed was a woman. She was completely translucent but with a blue glow. Emma could clearly see the outline of her dress and her flowing hair but her face was blank. There were no features, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, just blank where her face should be. Emma was terrified and like most children would, she retreated under the safety of her duvet and spent the night there, petrified. Seeing the blue lady became a regular thing. Although she didn't feel evil, Emma was still terrified of her. Eventually, she plucked up the courage to tell her mam what was happening. And to her surprise, her mam simply said, Oh, don't worry about her, she doesn't mean you any harm. What Emma had failed to realise was that her parents had been expertly hiding their own worries and reservations about the house from her. They too had seen the blue lady. And they too had been hearing odd noises. Vincent had heard three knocks on his bedroom window and instinctively checked to see who it was before realising that his window was on the second floor and it would be impossible for anyone to knock on the window without a ladder. And like any good horror movie dad, Vincent was sceptical. But he couldn't help but remember the black dog they had witnessed all those years ago. The activity continued in the house. They began to smell the smell of rotting meat in various rooms that would appear suddenly and then disappear. The night would be filled with bangs and knocks. The blue lady continued her nightly appearances and seemed to become stronger, sometimes sitting on the end of Emma's bed and humming softly to her. The family would lie awake at night, listening to what sounded like furniture being dragged around the house. Either parent would wake in the night and see the blue lady standing next to their bed. Emma began sleeping at her grandmother's house, just so she could get a good night's sleep, and no one wanted to be in the house alone. But what could they do? Every penny they had was tied up in the house, and so life had to go on. Lisa did some research into the rectory, and discovered the horrible fate of Sarah Waller, and realised that it was very likely that she was the presence that haunted their night times. As time went on, the house came together more and more. It began to feel less like living in a horror film, 
There was no denying that it was beautiful, and it was slowly being reverted to its original glory. They were learning to live with whatever shared the house with them. In 1997, Emma was out playing in the fields surrounding the house with her dogs. She was running with them, back down the lane to the house, when all of a sudden, the dog stopped and began to growl, heckles raised and fixated on something in the hedge. Emma doubled back, assuming that they had seen a cat or a rabbit and called them. They didn't come. She went to fetch them, and to see what poor creature they were growling at, when she came face to face with a huge black dog with glowing red eyes. She had never seen a dog like it, and she froze while she stared. It was at least twice the size of her dog's, and was watching her intently with red eyes that almost glowed. She backed away slowly, frightened that it would attack her or her dogs would attack it. The dog suddenly sprinted towards the house and disappeared. Emma ran with her dogs on her heels and breathlessly told her parents what she had seen. They looked at each other. It was the same lane that they too had seen a large black dog all those years before. And the weirdness didn't stop there for Emma or for the family. A few days later she was cycling the lanes when she saw a figure in the distance moving towards the house. It was a man, wearing a long black coat and a cap. As Emma got closer to him she realised that his face was not only completely ashen but it was also expressionless, frozen into a blank nothingness. Emma began to feel a sense of panic rising. There was something wrong with this man, but she didn't know what. She called out to him. Are you here to see my dad? He didn't respond. He didn't even react to her calling to him. He just turned and walked away before disappearing completely. Emma blinked, unsure of what to do or who to tell. It would only be years later that she would discover that an aunt who kept horses on the land had seen the same man and had also seen him vanish into thin air. At a loss as to what to do, the family sought advice and help from wherever they could get it. A priest came and said some prayers which quietened things down for a few days and then the haunting reinvigorated, the family went on local radio to seek help, and a psychic named Kate arrived, determined to help and find out what she could. She sensed the blue lady, but also the spirit of a very angry man. Kate would visit the house on many more occasions after this. People in the community talked, the newspaper wrote articles, many people scoffed at the family's plight, but in reality this was seriously impacting their well-being. How long can sleepless nights go on for? And how long can you live while being afraid in your own home? Eventually they agreed to allow Kate to conduct a seance in the house. The night before the seance, the computer in Emma's room began to flash, her room periodically being bathed in the glow of the monitor. She was more frustrated than scared, The electrics in the house regularly turned on and off of their own accord. She turned over to look at the screen and realised that this time it was different. 
Every time the monitor glowed, she could make out the outline of a face in the screen. That same night, Emma's father awoke, and something felt different. The blue lady never felt threatening, but something dark was in the room with him. He felt something grip him around the ankles and drag him down the bed slowly. Try as he might, he couldn't loosen his grip and eventually he began to pray and whatever it was let him go. Something had changed in the house and it no longer felt benevolent. During the seance, Kate made a connection with who she believed to be Sarah Waller and for a while after the house was quieter but every member of the family had the sense that something dark was lurking in the shadows. The new thing only made itself known after renovations started on the house in the year 2000. Vincent was converting the coach house, a small dwelling adjacent to the main house. It seemed that the renovations disturbed something different, a new entity that felt dark and oppressive. Emma would hear pounding footsteps again on the stairs and the landing outside her bedroom, except now it came with silence and then an aggressive rattling of the handle of her bedroom door, which it seemed was intended just to scare her. The birth of a new child in the house also heralded the arrival of something new. As soon as baby Victoria was old enough to talk, she began to talk about Saoirse. Saoirse was her friend who she played with and chatted to all through her childhood. At first the family took no notice, but over time they realised that there was something more to Saoirse. Victoria's eyes would follow something around the room, and when asked what she was looking at, she would always say, Saoirse. The family knew no other children by the name of Saoirse, and Victoria described her wearing a brown dress and having brown hair, but she was always sad because her mammy and daddy were in heaven. As it always does in haunted house stories, life moved on. The family entered into some sort of odd cohabitation with the undead residents of the Sharon Rectory. They learned to adapt to the paranormal activity that plagued them. And eventually, Emma moved from her room in the main house to the adjoining coach house that her father had renovated. It was still next to the main house, but enough to give her independence. The family had experienced odd happenings in the coach house too whisperings and chattering voices. Emma had once seen the apparition of a hanged man and they believed that it was their renovations of the coach house that had unleashed the dark thing on the family. There will undoubtedly be many of you thinking but why would she move in there alone? At what point do you stop being scared and start trying to live normally in spite of all the lack of normality around you? It would be nice to say at this point that Emma faced her fear in the coach house and our story ends, but it doesn't. Emma had many years of fear and worry in the coach house before she eventually moved out with her partner and her son. And whatever was in the house then turned its attention to Victoria and Emma's mother Lisa. Victoria was still adamant about Saoirse, but no one else had seen the spirit of a young girl until one night when Lisa was home alone. She went to bed as normal, with no particularly negative feelings, and fell into a deep sleep. She was awoken by the feeling of something hitting her legs. It was heavy, 
heavy enough to wake her. She lay in the bed, not daring to open her eyes. She knew she was alone in the house and couldn't understand what force was repeatedly thumping her on her legs. Eventually, after the thumping continued, she slowly looked over the duvet covers. And there she was. A young girl, aged about nine years old, was at the end of her bed. But she wasn't static or see-through or glowing like the blue lady. She was on the bed, jumping. Lisa stared and the girl opened her mouth, but no sound came out. It looked as though her mouth had been injured somehow, or disfigured, and she was trying to speak but couldn't form the words. And then just like that, she vanished. The family were then contacted by a team of paranormal investigators and still desperately seeking respite, they agreed for them to visit. What followed likely felt like a goldmine for the investigators. There were knocks and bangs and disembodied voices and witness testimony. But what followed next for the family was a reinvigorating of all of the negativity in the house. It was as though the attention from the investigation had fueled whatever evil lurked in the house and again it began to focus its attention on Victoria. She awoke one night to the shrill shriek of the fire alarm. She heard her mother scramble out of bed to investigate and sat upright listening. The alarm would shriek and turn off, shriek and turn off, and her mother assumed the batteries were low so went downstairs to double-check that everything was okay. Victoria breathed a sigh of relief, and then a gruff male voice whispered in her ear, You got big since you went to school. She was petrified and looked around the room, hardly daring to move. But there was no mystery man lurking in any corner. And then the voice whispered again. Hello. This marked the beginning of an increase in bangs and knocks around the house and the introduction of a male voice that would whisper and growl in various rooms and also a child's voice that would giggle and whisper too. The fire alarm continued to malfunction for days. It would beep shrilly, waking the household before stopping again, and try as they might, they could neither figure out why it was happening or get it to stop. When the real fire eventually did start, it wasn't the alarm that alerted Vincent. It was the dog. The fire started in the roof of the old library and it took the fire brigade a long time to extinguish the flames. The room was a shell of its former self. Vincent was hospitalised as he had suffered a heart attack in the attempts to put out the blaze. When the last embers were dying down and the family were about to go to Vincent in hospital, a fireman approached them and asked... Who was the other woman that lived in the house? She stood on the stairs and watched the room burn down. This was the point that Emma begged her family to leave the house, but her mother refused. They had put their heart, soul and finances into this place, and they were not going to be driven out by anyone or anything. And again, life moved on. Due to changing circumstances, Emma and her now two sons, Noah and Jonah, 
moved back into the Sharon rectory. The family continued to see things. Lisa was in the kitchen one night and turned to see a perfectly modern young man standing in the kitchen, who disappeared in the blink of an eye. He was so normal-looking that Lisa assumed initially that he had somehow broken in, but realised that was probably not the case when he vanished into thin air. Victoria was followed up the stairs by a man on all fours. But the validation that they were not all going mad came from little Noah. One morning, he came to Emma and told her that in his room that night was the big scary man. When asked to describe him, Noah said he was very tall and all black like a shadow and that he wasn't a nice man. Emma's other son Jonah was sitting watching TV one night when he said the dark man with the sharp teeth and the long claws was watching them through the window again. And on it went. The family would see shadows scuttling around on all fours out of their peripheral vision. Sleep paralysis was and always had been a regular occurrence for both family and visitors to the house. I wish I could tell you that there is a positive end to this story. There isn't. After an exorcism carried out by a paranormal team, the activity continued and has not abated. A psychic medium posited that there was something evil and ancient on the land that had been there long before the rectory was built, and the tragedies that had occurred there only made it more powerful. Emma went public with the story, and faced a lot of ridicule but also a lot of support. Eventually, the family stopped allowing paranormal teams into the house. There are obviously elements of this story that I haven't included, namely the horrific impact that living in this house has had on the family over the years. I realise now as we've, as I've finished the story, that Emma didn't speak to Noah and Jonah about what was happening in the house. So she didn't say, oh, this house is haunted to the kids. And when they said, oh, the bad man is in the room at night time, whatever, whatever, she would say to them, oh, don't worry, it's just a bad dream. So I just, before anybody is like, well, she's been telling them it's haunted. That's why they're saying those things. I just wanted to rectify that. I should have made it clearer in the story. So what did you think? Well, there is, I mean, that is a great, great stuff going on there, isn't there? I mean, not great stuff, but there's a lot of stuff going on there. What a story to discuss. I want to start by talking about Sarah Waller. Okay. I don't know why I was waiting for you to say something then. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> sure, if you want to start with talking about Sarah, that's fine. Sarah Waller is clearly not an evil spirit. She's there just bopping about doing a spiriting business. And although she died unjustly, which in some cases can cause a spirit to be evil or vengeful, she died in this instance protecting her husband. So I feel that the overriding emotion is love and therefore that's why she's probably just a good spirit. I really feel for her because that, that story that I told in the beginning genuinely happened. That's that's not a, a local legend or anything. That really did happen and I think that it's it was one of the catalysts of or one of the kind of opening shots of um, a rebellion at the time. But he... Hamilton died in a way that I actually didn't want to describe on the podcast because I know we have small children that listen 
So that will tell you how horrifically he died. And she lived for not not a long time, but she she was shot once and then dragged by the servants into the kitchen and they tried to keep her alive and then um she was shot again. So it like it's it was a really horrific incident. And I think if you are a believer in tragedy leaving a stain like paranormally on somewhere this this is a pretty tragic event there was also a woman and a child who died in childbirth i think later in later years not not anything um uh, violent or murdery but just a, a tragic death so it's not, it's it's a place that has seen a lot of sadness and i don't think sarah's spirit is vengeful either but i think it's interesting that in the book Emma describes how, yes, she realised that she wasn't evil or didn't mean her any harm, but she was still terrified of her. Yeah, I guess she would be, wouldn't you? Because it's a ghost. I'd be scared of a ghost, even if I knew the ghost personally. (laughs) I think I'd be scared of Casper at this point, to be honest. (laughs) Are we presuming then that the hat man in this instance is Mr. Hamilton? See, I don't think so. That's what I thought when I started reading. I was like, well, it's going to be the vengeful ghost of Mr. Hamilton. But I think... it, it Right. It sounds like something darker. I'm not saying he's not there in the house. Because, you know, he died a pretty horrific death there. But like, holy moly, whatever is in that house is horrendous. I mean, there's more talk about like... People getting scratched while they're there. Like people, you know, Emma waking up with bite marks all over her body. Like crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy stuff. So no, I know I don't think it is Mr. Hamilton. Every time I say Hamilton, I want to sing. And uh, it's really taken all my power not to do that. Good. I'm glad you're not. The reason I think it might be, though, is because out of the two deaths that we got context from, he was trying not to die, whereas mm, that's a good point. Sarah ran Waller actively ran into the line of fire to save her husband. And I feel like that might be more reason to be a bit disgruntled. There's a part of the legend as well that said that he hid initially behind Mr. Waller in his wheelchair when the shots were fired. So if that is true and if that is to be believed, maybe there's an element of guilt there. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Hmm, it's very interesting. I the other thing that I'm really intrigued by is the black dog. Sounds very mm. black shuck like to me. Yeah, and we've had so many, like so many stories. This is the reason why I don't do haunted house stories one after another because they're all so similar. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean people are experiencing the same things everywhere. Like it's just wild. There's so much of it. Like if you think about Hey Old Fanog when they had their seances and stuff in the house they started seeing all sorts of shit because the the psychics were like well it's it's like a beacon to spirits and it feels like it's the same in this house because the mother was seeing like modern ghosts not just you know victorian ghosts or a floating blue lady she saw a man in the house who she thought what how have you fucking broken into my house yeah i don't know how energy works but part of me feels like if you're stoking up a thing by doing a seance or a Ouija board you know how I feel about those 
then maybe you're leaving like a beacon on the veil, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know. And so, like, spirits just see, like, the remnants of it and come through as a way of trying to communicate. I just don't understand where the dog fits in. No, I don't understand either. Because this isn't a ghost pet dog. We're not talking, like, the one that haunts the cemetery in Edinburgh. No. We're talking about a ghost with glowing red eyes. Very strange. Very black shucky. Yes, Black Shuck, if you're not aware, is like a legend in Norfolk, isn't it? Uh, of a of a giant black dog. Mm. Um, but it is, yeah. And it's it's interesting that these things are also generational, like family members from different generations have seen it. I did wonder when I was reading this, and I, I just have to be realistic, about if you are living in a house that's haunted, and I know this probably might be an irrelevant thing to say, if you're living in a house that you think is haunted, do you then attribute everything to the paranormal? So every knock, bang, every sound, do you go, hey, that means it must be the ghost? I'd say yes. And I also fully understand why. Because if I think about how hard I have to fight to not think that all the noises in our house are a ghost, if I'd actually seen a ghost in the house... That'd be it. Yeah. And these, this family had seen several ghosts. So, yes, it probably was the ghosts. Probably not an unrealistic expectation at this point, is it really? Uh, More proof that ghosts can start fires. So, about that. The fire brigade proved that the fire started naturally. But... I wondered if the fire alarm going off regularly beforehand was like a warning that it was going to happen. Oh, yeah, I think you might mm. be on Yeah. That only occurred to me, like, as I was reading it out loud, because I had written it and not made that connection. And then I thought, well, why would the fire alarm suddenly start going off all the time? Because it's not a constant in the story. It happens in that burst just before the fire starts and the fire brigade like they they investigated and there was um and a, a wire in the ceiling that had faulted and set fire so the ghost didn't set fire but then the fireman came to them and said who was that woman the other woman that lives in your house see that's what made me initially think that the ghost had started the fire but then thinking about it now if i was a ghost and i knew i wasn't gonna die and i probably can't feel heat i'd probably stand and watch a fire because they look amazing and it's her house. That's her home. Yeah. If you if we if we're going with the theory that it was Sarah Waller, that's her home that she's watching burn down. That must be awful. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm no fireman. I don't I have nowhere to go with that. So we're we're ending that that sentence there. How creepy is Baby Victoria naming a girl ghost by a name that she's potentially not even heard and following it around the room? And having conversations with it. We have so many stories like this about imaginary friends. I, I can't deal with them. And in the context of this, the wider context of this story, it's even freakier. Like, where is she? Who is she? Why does she rock up so late? Why didn't Emma see her? What's she doing? What's she want? I would like to say as well, at this point in time, a massive thank you to the lovely David Keane for providing sound effects for this episode and being a great sport about it. Thank you, David Keane. You are an absolute legend. Or I could just pretend that I had an actual audio recording of the entity that was in the house. But I don't. It was David Keane. I don't mean to shock anybody, but that's who it was. 
I'm presuming the little girl ghost wasn't David Keane. I I can't I wasn't there, so I can't say either way whether it was or it wasn't David Keane. Okay, next fifty P movie club episode, Dave, you need to tell me, were you the ghost in this house? I'm guessing probably not. Um but yeah, I can't deal I can't handle I can't handle this little girl ghost. I who is she? Why has she just rocked up all of a sudden? Why do new ghosts keep appearing in this house? I don't know. That's what that's why it reminds me of that other story, because it's like they're attracted to it. You know, you've got, so as it stands, we've got the dog, which is whatever that is. We've got the man who knocks around outside with the hat that Emma sees. And the boys gave the extra added details of long claws and teeth. Yeah, you've got whatever, whatever. (laughs) What is that? Whatever that is. But I'm talking about the man she sees in the laneway with the flat cap. Yeah. So, So, and he just disappears. And then her aunt saw him as well. You've got the blue lady which they believe is Sarah Waller. You've got this wee girl, this Saoirse, and then you've got whatever this entity thing is, whatever this shadowy creature is. Not to mention the young fella that just rocks up in the kitchen oh. a little bit lost. Also the young fella, <laughs> who in my head, weirdly, was like Danny Zuko from Greece, and I don't know why I pictured him <laughs> like that. Because A, it's not modern, and B, Danny Zuko wasn't a teenager in that. I mean, he was play- He was pretending to be a teenager, but he was about 40. So I don't know why that was in my head. He definitely wasn't 40. <laughs> At least. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't, there's something, I don't want to sound too Zach Bagans-ish, but it's almost like a portal's been opened, isn't it? I was waiting for the portal conversation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much... Like how much credence I put into the whole portal thing. But I wonder if that's because in every bloody ghost hunting, paranormal investigation, TV show, everywhere they go, there's a bloody portal to somewhere. See, I'm not I'm not jumping on the portal train. I'm not. I don't really think that portals. I think portals are a more dramatic way of saying like the veil being thin. And I'm on board for that. I feel like there is a veil between the spiritual world and this world and I do feel that some places other rather than others it gets a little bit thin and it's not always as specific as just having like portal sounds like Stargate that's what that's what it makes me think of so oh yeah <laughs> gotta remember that show so there's like a physical like a, there's like an actual door that goes through I, I just feel like sometimes the veil just gets a little bit thin and it you know it can happen in a place like a location like Gelfenog if that's how you say it Hail, Hail or like this place, or it might just be over a period, like it just might be for a short period of time, like it just thins out for a little bit, and that's how I think these things work. I don't feel, I don't buy into this portals thing, even though I've essentially said portals exist, I've just given it a different name, but that's not the point. So if you, if you had to ask this family like one thing, because they still live there now, like they are still living in that house, and there's still stuff going on. If you're interested in seeing the house, they have a Facebook page. That's been recently, only recently in the last like year or so set up and they have cameras and stuff in the house. So you can go and have a look at it and see just what it looks like. But if you were to ask them one question, what do you think you'd ask them? How do you get to a position? Like, what is the motivation behind the point that you get to where you just put up with this stuff? It's funny you should ask that because you will be able to ask them yourself. Um, Really? Yes, you will. Because on Tuesday, we will be doing a live stream on YouTube. And in that live stream, the lovely Emma, who still lives in the house. How? I don't know. But the lovely Emma, who still lives in the house, has agreed to come on and have a chat with us about what it's like living in Sharon Rectory and the whole story behind the house. So 
better think about how to phrase that question so it actually makes sense and then I really <laughs> probably a good idea but if you want to catch that live stream it'll be on Tuesday the 30th of March at 7.15 GMT I think and I will obviously upload it to to YouTube afterwards so if you don't get to catch it live like it will still be there for you um, yeah but we'll be having a chat with Emma and asking her some questions about what life is like in Sharon Rectory and and how they how they're surviving we will be in British summertime by that point as well. So if you are thinking of joining us from elsewhere in the world, world, it might be a good idea to like Google what time is it in Britain now so you get an, an accurate up-to-date time thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, you can find out everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can submit your own story to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month and $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. All of the links for everything will be in the description of this episode, including the link to our YouTube channel where you can watch our live stream on Tuesday. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.